Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18. The passage that we just read and the passages that the verses that we'll look at today from Colossians suggest, encourage, almost demand a time of self-reflection with questions that I believe are very important for each of us as believers. Questions like, where am I experiencing spiritual progress with the Lord? Do I want to grow in my faith even if it costs me? What are some real consequences of being spiritually stagnant? Are others seeing spiritual difference in my life? I want to encourage you, maybe in the notebooks that you've gotten from your Colossians study or maybe on a piece of paper or the bulletin, to write those questions down. We'll come back to them at the end and to reflect on them this week. Today we do continue in our study in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 4. And Paul's motive and message uh, continues that he wants the Colossian church to understand that Jesus is supreme and that Jesus is sufficient. And the title of our series is Jesus and the Supremacy of Jesus in All Things. In our passage today, Paul is going to continue to zero in on Jesus in a way that challenges us uh, to question what we really believe about him. Are we growing in him Are we lifting him up to the glory of God? Without the motivation to spiritually grow, Paul warns the church there that they could be led astray and be taken captive by the false teachers that were going around that day. And so Paul, by leading by example, he warns the Colossians that although they have been made complete in Christ, we are nowhere near perfect. And there has to be in us a desire to grow in what we have been given So the title of the message this morning is Complete in Christ. We'll look at verses 4 through 15, but before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time and space that you've given us to be encouraged by the songs that we sang, to rehearse your truth through songs and the lyrics, to be encouraged through fellowship, of each other. God, I thank you for the time we spent in prayer and communion with you. And God, I pray now that as we open your word that you would teach us in all wisdom and truth, that your spirit would enlighten us, that your spirit would expose your truth and principles from your word and expose our hearts before you. God, I pray that you would Help us to stay attentive to you. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear, receive, and respond to the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles. You can turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 7 and stop there. 
I say this that no one, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. First thing I want to look at is progressing in the faith. Now, what do we mean? What do you think of when we talk about progressing, when someone or something is progressing? Progressing in the dictionary means to, uh, to move forward. There's an onward movement. There's, you're moving it, but the important thing about the definition is that you're moving toward a destination. For example, we made little progress as we moved toward Hilton Head driving on 278. <laughs> or little progress leaving the island at 4.30 in the afternoon headed to Bluffton. There's a destination. There's an onward movement. There's another part of the definition of progress that means that there's a development. There's an advancement or an improvement, an ongoing movement towards a destination of improvement or betterment underway. Now, how many of you have ever heard the phrase or said the phrase or thought the phrase, resting on your laurels? Now, resting on your laurels is a, a kind of an athletic term where they used to have this wreath, and it was a sign of victory. And so resting on your laurels meant that you were rehearsing or kind of taking a break, stopping, resting on your past victories. And sometimes we hear the same thing in the church. We'll hear things like, well, I got saved when I was a kid. I went to youth group. I learned to memorize a lot of Bible verses. I went on a mission trip. I went on an awesome youth trip. I served with the youth. I even served with middle school youth group. <laughs> I gave sacrificially one time. I read through the Bible one time. These are all great. And all are these are wonderful and things to be remembered and celebrated. Uh, no doubt God has used them to encourage you. So we remember those things with joy. But the question is, what is happening now in your journey since those things? Is there still a desire in you to pursue Jesus? To progress this onward movement to becoming like Jesus and to glorify God. I have found that in the Christian life, we never stand still. We either go forward or we gradually slip backwards. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. The writer of Hebrews, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on, progress instead, and become mature in our understanding, Hebrews 6.1. So the question is, why? Why is growing, why is progressing in the faith so important? And it begs the question, 
Is growing in your faith, progressing in your faith, important to you? Really? We use this phrase sometimes. Maybe you say it too. I say it. When somebody says, hey, can I do anything for you? Do you want anything? And you go, no, I'm good. Anybody ever say that? I'm good. Sometimes uh, our posture, our attitude towards the things of God and progressing in our faith can have that same attitude. No, I'm good. I'm good. And one of the primary reasons, the reason Paul gives in our passage today is best summarized by Warren Wiersbe when he says this, the believer who is not making spiritual progress is an open target for the enemy to attack and potentially destroy. So Paul writes to the Colossians with this truth in mind in verse 4. He shows us the reason for our need to progress in the faith. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. We need to understand, and most of us have recognized this, that Satan is deceptive. Never forget, never forget that Satan wants to lead believers, you and I, down a path of destruction. He is smarter than we are. But as believers, he's not smarter than the Jesus within us. And so we rest on Jesus to be smarter than deceptive words. Satan is a master. A master at disguising the bad stuff with good stuff. As what may appear as light, but really evil and darkness. And sometimes it may look like a grand plan. Remember, Satan uses deceptive words, deceptive things. And Paul says, don't let anyone delude you or deceive you. This word delude is the same word as beguile. It's only used two times in the New Testament. And this other time it's used in James. Chapter 1, verse 22. And you've heard this verse before probably. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now the Greek word in this means persuasive arguments as that of a lawyer. Persuasive speech, enticing words, subtle things, not blatant things, but slick arguments, slick justifications. We have to remember John 8, 44, Satan is a liar. And as we believe, sometimes get caught up, deluded, enticed, deceived, by the lies of Satan, then we too will live out of those lies. And Paul is saying, do not let anyone delude you, deceive you. Now, in my, as a side note, in my own mind, in my own mind, I can become a really good defense lawyer. I can justify things pretty well. In fact, I can delude myself. How do we know then if something is a truth or a lie? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what I have found scripture to back up and important in my own life. When I am trying to discern a truth or a lie, I plop Jesus right down in the middle of it. Because Jesus says of himself, I am the light. 
and he will expose the darkness. Brennan Manning said this, Freedom ends when Jesus is lost in our view. When he cannot get a hearing in the midst of ecclesiastical setup. When he is ignored in favor of legalizing or moralizing or even philosophizing our own personal pursuit. Nevertheless, the word of God stands that when Christ freed us, he freed us to remain free. When we are called to the liberty of freedom, it does not mean we are called to the liberty of our own lusts. That's why Paul says to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive into the obedience of who? Christ. Do you see what Paul's trying to say? Do not let anyone, even your own self, delude you. Take everything captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what it means to grow and progress in our spiritual walk with the Lord. Now, in verses 5 through 7, Paul uses six different metaphors, six different pictures that he paints about the progressing believer in Christ. Now, I want to challenge you this week to take one a day. There are six of them, so by the end of next week, when you come back, you'll be able to go through all six. And just take one a day and ask yourself in reflection about your spiritual progress in Christ. Now, let me just say this. Most of you will affirm this with a loud amen. In the spiritual life with God, A plus B does not always equal C. So this is not a formula to become a better Christian. This are, these are metaphors to challenge us to progress in our faith in Jesus to become more like him. And the first metaphor we see in verse 5 is that of an army. For even though I am absent in the body, Paul says, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Two words here, discipline and stability. These are uh, military terms. That there's a discipline, there's an army that is solidified, there's, there's a discipline in priority and order. You know, discipline sometimes can be synonymous with order, meaning that there is a priority about your life. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. New Testament continues to say, Put, set your things on things above. There's a priority, there's an order. Same thing as it is in the military. There's a there's priority. There's also this word stability. There's also this word of steadfastness. So Paul is saying Christians, the church, ought to make progress and discipline, setting order, and obedience to give us stability. There's another word he uses. There's a word pilgrim that comes from this. Verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord... So walk in him. What's interesting is that throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus teaching, all throughout Paul's letters, the Bible never says, get saved and sit down. I'm reading this book, this new book by John Mark Comer. It's called Practicing the Way, Be With Jesus, Become Like Him, and Do As He Did. And he has some interesting points in here. And one of the things he notices 
that I've looked at before is that there in Scripture, in the New Testament, the word Christian is only mentioned three times. But the word disciple is mentioned 269 times. This is not a heretical statement. Just follow my thinking. Jesus never invited us to become a Christian. He desires for us to become his disciples. Christian is a position. Little Christ. We represent Christ. But the invitation of Jesus all throughout the New Testament was come, follow me. It wasn't this idea of I'm going to receive salvation and sit and rest on my laurels. There is an action. There is a come, follow me to this life with Jesus. Some have called it a pilgrimage. Others have called it a journey with Jesus. And the point is this. Paul is saying, as you have received Jesus, now walk in him. Journey with him. He already said in Colossians 1.10, walk worthy of the Lord. He says to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, walk in wisdom, not foolishness. There is a mentality to walk, to journey, to pilgrimage with the Lord. And how are we to walk? Verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So it begs the question, how did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Two words. By faith. And so how do we walk with Jesus? By faith. So as you walk in faith, Paul is saying to recognize, listen, discern the voice of God the voice of Jesus, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. The third metaphor is that of a tree. He says, having been firmly rooted. Now here's a picture of a tree, and here's a picture of the roots. One commentator said, Christians are not to be weeds that have no roots and are blown about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4.14. You and I have, as believers are rooted in deep biblical history. We're rooted deeply in the person and work of Jesus. The roots then draw nourishment so that we can grow. Now, I am not a big Christian cliche person, but this one fits. You may have heard of it. Our roots determine our fruits. One person after the first sermon said, I should have named the the message uh, Rudy Fruity. I don't know if I really liked it. But the principle is this. What we are rooted in will produce the fruits. Certainly we think of Galatians chapter 5, that as we're rooted in Jesus and the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit comes out. So we have to ask ourselves, what are my motives rooted in? What are my pursuits rooted in my decisions the way I behave the way I act the way I talk what is it rooted in have you ever thought about the rootedness of Jesus who he was rooted in I asked several people this week 
a question that Dallas Willard liked to ask people he was working with. If you were just given one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? And he clarifies it by saying not necessarily who he is or what he has done. Not necessarily that he's Savior and Redeemer or friend. All those are true. But the question is, what one word would describe the experience you would have with him? Say, if you were one of his disciples, what would you notice about him? Dallas Willard ended his uh, thoughts on this by saying, my word for Jesus, my one word, is relaxed. And I think, how in the world could Jesus be relaxed? He's got the whole world in his hands. We sing about that. People, his role. I'm convinced Jesus was rooted deeply in his father, whom he often called Abba, in this tenderness of, of his father. And therefore, his rootedness was displayed. Paul says we are to be rooted, growing, and progressing in our faith. Another metaphor he uses in verse 7 is a building and now being built up in him. It's an architectural term. It's Jesus is the foundation that we are to build our lives on. And here's the deal. God is the contractor. He gets to call the shots. He knows how to build. And he won't stop building until he says it's complete. Philippians 1.6, For I'm convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God will continue building you to perfection, to holiness in him until Jesus returns. Jesus is the goal of what we are being built into. And I want to add something here that I think sometimes we fall short, come up short with, particularly in the Western church. Our journey with Jesus, our progression with Jesus in the spiritual life is about becoming like Jesus and about the glory of God. Becoming like Jesus and the glory of God. But sometimes in our culture, we can pull up short. And what I mean by this is, is something like this. We can become so focused on our peace, our joy, our purpose, our freedoms, our feelings settled, the blessing of our relationships, our spouses, our children, our families, and we can become uh, on our journey with Jesus. But it's not about us. All those things are about glorifying God. At the end of the day, it's about the glory of God. Therefore, we take all that we have and ask ourselves, does this glorify God? It's the litmus test. The fifth one is a student established in your faith just as you were instructed. Established is a word that means secure, it means fixed, it means confident, it means it's not easily swayed. It also is a word that drives away insecurities, that we are established. And as we're instructed, 
is how we are established. I, I don't know about you, but I can be forgetful. Anybody else have an issue with forgetfulness? So as I'm forgetful, I need reminding. The scriptures, the word of God is a reminder to us of our establishment, of our security. One author said this, Satan has a more difficult time deceiving the Bible-taught believer. That is why Satan had no authority over Jesus in the wilderness. Why? Because Jesus quoted scripture to him. He was established in the word of God. And as we think about a student, we think that they, they are established in one grade and they progress to the next grade, that they move to the next grade. And some of you here are thinking third grade was the best five years of my life. And sometimes our walk with Jesus can feel that way. Why have I not learned this yet? But there's a progress. There's a pursuit as a student to live as you were instructed. No one here knows as much as God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we're always a student learning, understanding the heart of God and the ways of Jesus. The sixth and final metaphor Paul uses is that of a river established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. It's such a great word picture. The word overflowing suggests a picture of a riverbank that's overflowing. Can't be contained. Think about it. When we came to Christ, we stopped drinking water from the world and began drinking living water of Jesus a well that's in us that will never run dry. And remember the, Jesus with the woman at the well? John chapter 4. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water that I give, they'll never thirst again. And the water that I give will become in him a well of springing up of eternal life. And then what does he say in John chapter 7, verse 38? He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of flowing water. This water goes deeper and deeper and higher and higher with thanksgiving, and it just can't, it just can't be contained. And the point Paul is making is that this living water is not put in a glass and then set on a shelf. It comes into us and flows out of us. It's the difference between a pond and a river. Now look at these two pictures. A pond is stagnant. It's collecting algae and filth. And let me just ask, if you wanted a drink of water, which would you rather drink from? Which do you think? Which do you think? People who are really thirsty for the Lord outside these walls want to drink from. To those who are thirsty and have been drinking from stagnant and life-giving water, Paul says, you, church, are to be a river of overflowing water, spilling over. Paul continues his encouragement and warnings in verses 8 through 10. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ." Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Verse 10, 
And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Second point is about being alert and rehearsing truth. Paul says in verse 8, See to it then that nobody takes you captive. Now the interesting thing about the false teachers at this church at Colossae is that they weren't trying to get converts. They were taking the Christians and taking them captive with their empty thoughts, with their false teaching, with their deceptive words. How do, the, how, how do Christians become captive to this? Have you thought about it? How do Christians become captive? Here's two reasons. One is they disregard or they become ignorant of God's word. And they are most times lured away, as James says, isolated, figuring things out on their own, not bringing it to the community for discernment. And they're led astray. They can become fascinated and allured and influenced. And Paul says in verse 8, it is the tradition of man, not the truth of God's word. So the important thing for us to ask about teaching, about our lives, about what we're receiving, is this from God or is this from man? The empty elementary principles of the world Paul talked about this as spirits of the universe and the heavenly bodies and all this stuff. And he, at the end of the day, his big question was simple. Why would you follow all of these empty philosophies and promises of people when you have the fullness of Christ? Don't be captivated. In him, verse 10, you have been made complete, made full. Listen to the extended, expanded translation. And you are in him having been completely filled, full with the presence and results that you are in a state of fullness. How many of you have ever been to like a restaurant or even a meal at home, particularly like a buffet, and you eat and eat and eat, and at the end of it you say what? I'm full. I'm stuffed. I can't take another bite, although some of us try to do one more after that point. Paul is saying you are full. You don't need another bite. You've got it all. And watch what happens. As we consume our food and we are full, what does the body do? The body uses what we have eaten to nourish us so that we can actually live. The same is true with Jesus. We don't add to it. We take what we have already been given and we are nourished. Spiritual growth is not about addition, it's about nutrition. It's not by adding something. It's not adding to the work of Jesus. Growth is feeding on what we've already been made complete in. The fullness of God. You are complete in Christ. I want to finish this passage, verses 11 through 15, of what we have in Him. And in Him... You are also circumcised with circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him up from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, turning, having triumphed over them through him. Part of the false teaching was this idea of Jewish legalism, that you had to, to add this to it and add that to it, to, to be circumcised, to have this diet, to take this different practice, to do this certain festival, to eat this way. And Paul is saying that all those things are an addition and they're not needed because you are complete in Christ. And we hear the same kind of things today. I, I, I read my Bible today. I, I become more spiritual. I went on a mission trip. I'm more spiritual. I fasted from dinner to breakfast. I'm, I'm spiritual. There's nothing, nothing you can add to it to become more spiritual. We are full complete already and don't get me wrong uh, these practices can be used to god's glory to move us into the likeness of jesus but they do not make us more spiritual our spiritual growth and spiritual condition is a work of god on the inside not something we manufacture from the outside paul says in verses 11 through 15 that we are circumcised in him notice the in hymns through hymns with hymns Paul's not talking about a, a physical circumcision. He's talking about the spiritual circumcision of our hearts. Romans 2.29. Circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not of the letter. Things that need to be removed from our spiritual, to hinder, that hinders our spiritual progress. He says we're alive in him. He used the baptism illustration. There's two different ways to look at baptism. There's a literal where it means to dip or to immerse, and there's the figurative, which Paul uses here, to identify with. Remember when Jesus is baptized, he went down into the water, it says. Baptized, buried with Christ, Romans says. Arise and walk in the newness of life, just like Jesus did. He identified with us so that we could identify with him. And we have been made alive. So whatever happened with Christ at the baptism happens with us. And we can hear the same voice of God. This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. It was the power of God that changed us, not the power of the water, one author said. We're free from the law in him. We are delivered from the law, Paul says, Romans 7, 6, not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6, 14. And we are victorious in him, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Because of Jesus and being with Jesus, Satan has no power over us. We can expose Satan for who he is, and we can triumph and return to glory just like Jesus. Those are the victories we've been given. So let me ask some questions, and I'll close. Questions I'd like for you to consider this week with you and the Lord. Am I pursuing spiritual progress with the Lord? What are some reasons that you would think that believers would stop pursuing Jesus? Examine that this week, maybe in some metaphors that we looked at. But first, we really probably need to answer this question. Do I want to grow in my faith? Do I really want to grow in my faith? Have you told the Lord that? It's the real heart of the question. Or is my posture, my attitude, nah, you know, I'm good. I'm good. 
Or is your, your mentality, your thing like, oh man, I am so tired of growing with the Lord. So tired of this Bible stuff and this church stuff. What's your attitude about your spiritual progress with the Lord? Ask yourself this, what are some real consequences of being spiritually stagnant? I love what one author said. He said, we grow spiritually stagnant when we lose the wonder of Jesus. The wonder of Jesus. My challenge to you is whatever situation, circumstances you're dealing with, whatever relationship you have, whatever thing you're dealing with, is to plop Jesus right down in the middle of it. For the glory of God. The last question, are other people seeing a spiritual difference in your life? If they were to hang around you, what one word would they use to describe you and your relationship with Jesus? Our prayer is to become like Jesus, to the glory of God. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for this morning. Thank you for this passage. There's so much in here that we cannot even begin to talk about on a Sunday morning. So I pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts. We know, God, that you have every hair of our hair numbered, every beat of our heart numbered. You know every thought. You know every need. And so, God, we trust you to do only that which you can do by your spirit. Help us, we pray. Convict us, we pray, to progress and pursue our relationship with you so that we can become more like you, not to be deceived, not to be deluded, but to grow in the likeness of you to the glory of your Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.